Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, a week ago, we held a heavyweight roundtable session of top B2B marketers in Australia, ranging from HP to Deloitte, IAG and Dell, along with LinkedIn and B2B agency specialists from Merkel and Green Hat to SenseCheck, what the hell was happening in the B2B talent mashup. And yes, like everyone, it's a massive challenge. Some of the key themes that emerged from the roundtable included the much tighter marketing talent pool in B2B and the efforts by B2B marketers to lure consumer marketers into the field. Of course, there are widely held perceptions that B2B marketing is not as sexy as B2B and plays heavily down at the bottom of the funnel in customer lead and demand generation, primarily for sales teams. But what we also discovered is that a bunch of B2B marketers at the roundtable were previously consumer marketers and are hooked. Why? Well, I'm going to let them tell you, but it's pretty interesting for any marketer wanting to deepen and broaden their capabilities, particularly in some of the skills areas that everyone is now hunting for. So on the mics today to unpack the B2B marketing talent challenge is a super lineup. Joining LinkedIn's Director of Enterprise for Southeast Asia, Korea and ANZ, Prue Cox, is Telstra's Head of Enterprise Marketing Communication Team, Kelly Tyson, and ServiceNow's Head of Marketing, Caroline Raj. So welcome to you all. I suspect this is about to get really interesting. Um, Prue Cox, before we get into the discussion, it might be worth repeating some of those marketing talent and capability stats that you were seeing at LinkedIn that you cited last week at the roundtable. There's some really telling figures in there. And just give us the top line and welcome, Prue. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. Yeah, there definitely is some really interesting stats coming through. So in Australia, we have just under 140,000 professionals in marketing and advertising. 20,000 have changed, of those have changed jobs in the last 20 months. When it comes to agency, which is, you know, a hot topic, agency churn has increased by 50% in the last 12 months. And I know some of the agency people we were talking about saying it was already a high level of churn within agencies. So to see that come up 50%, you know, is quite massive. Um, One of the other things I found really interesting was the median tenure of those um, marketing and advertising professionals is 1.4 years that they've been in the role. So there's a lot, you know, of, of, you know, very early stage um, that they've been in in these roles and quite a bit of turnover. The other one which I'll um, leave you with, 47% of Australians are now considering company culture a top priority when choosing a job. So that is the number one and it is, you know, trumping things like compensation and benefits which have, have always been sort of you know, a, high, a high priority for when they're looking at new roles. Mm, so some really interesting stats there. Just Can I just touch on the churn thing first, Prue? Did you say 1.2 years? Um, that's compared to CMOs. Yeah, 1.4. I know previously, um, you know, we'd sort of seen CMOs were roughly in, in, in seat for about two and a half years and a yes. lot of discussion around that because, you know, what could they do for long-term strategy um, if that average was around two and a half? So what we're seeing now that, you know, for all marketing and advertising professionals, it's, it's even lower. That's right. All the churn is yeah, the churn is greater further down below the CMO, and that's quite challenging. We'll get to our, our panelists in a minute and their thoughts on that. 
The other thing I think um, we'll have a good conversation around is this culture bit and what we're seeing, a bit of the boomerang effect, as some are calling it. But now we've got those top-line stats. Um, Kelly and Caroline, let's talk about your own great challenge with talent in both your organisations. Just talk to us, both of you, about what's been the, the hardest part so far in talent management, attraction and retention, right? Because it's, it's both. You've got to attract and you've got to keep. Kelly, first up, how do those stats from Prue sound and what's been your experience in the last you know, year or two in B2B talent? So firstly, thank you for having me. That stat around 1.4, it's quite terrifying. It's terrifying, exactly. Um, You know, and I think that we'll touch on a little bit later, you know, the recruitment and and dipping into the B2C talent pool. And I guess the impact of that is 1.4 years in role, particularly if you're new to B2B marketing, um, is have you really felt like you've come in and mastered the craft in 1.4 enough to move on and I'd, I'd really challenge that. Well, let's start with have you understand the craft, let alone master it, Kelly, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The portfolio, the stakeholders, you know, all of the usual things when you're starting a new role um, to feel confident enough to move on after 1.4 years. Well, kudos to you, I certainly wouldn't. Um, but, <laughs> yes. you know, fortunately it's not something that I've seen within the Telstra Enterprise marketing team, that kind of tenure. Certainly people are looking at building their career paths and there is renewed energy on that at the moment. You know, I think, you know, to go back to the question around recruiting, there is a tighter talent pool for for B2B talent. And for us at Telstra Enterprise, I guess there's just this added layer of STEM in that as well. And, you know, with so much um, digital innovation out there um, and so many companies looking for this kind of talent on top of B2B marketing, adding that extra layer of STEM makes it an even tighter talent pool for for us. So, you know, it's a seller's market. It's great if you are one of those unicorns out there that's got great B2B marketing and um, IT and technology experience um, because the opportunities are really exciting, um, but certainly comes with challenges for recruiters. Um, In terms of, you know, retaining talent then, it does come down to that culture piece. And I'm really looking forward to a great conversation today on the culture within B2B marketing. Just uh, for Telstra's, in Telstra's experience in B2B, then you haven't, as you say, you haven't seen the churn levels coming out like the aggregate stats are showing, but are you trying to hire and is it harder to hire or what sort of people are you hiring? You mentioned STEM as well. So what are you looking at in your talent acquisition, if you like, at the moment? What are the ideals for you, for the priorities? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so our priorities, you know, we are hiring on, on culture and, and mindsets first, but we're absolutely prioritising B2B capability and um, background in, in IT and tech as well because that aligns with our Telstra Enterprise portfolio and, and some of the, the products that we'll be looking to market. Um, so it, of course, makes the onboarding process and the time to success for the candidate a lot faster if if they come on board with those things. But it's you know, it's not the be all and end all. And there are, there are mindsets that we're looking for beyond just those kind of core technical capabilities. We are recruiting at the moment and we're always interested in talking to people who've got those skill sets and are interested and excited and passionate about marketing technology to enterprise customers. But it is just this tighter talent pool at the moment um, and so much opportunity out there in the context of people really reassessing at the moment um, how their work life aligns with the values that they hold in their personal lives. Mm. Caroline, how's the overall talent pool? And you, I think business might be booming for service now at the moment, so I imagine you're probably looking for people. 
How is managing your existing talent and acquiring new talent, how difficult has it been for you? Yeah, I think out in the marketplace at the moment when we talked in the roundtable, I called it the Hunger Games. Like looking at the B2B kind of pool, you know, everybody is, I suppose, dipping into everybody's pool at the moment. And I wanted to, and I think the churn in the market, it doesn't surprise me because, you know, everybody's reevaluated their lives through the pandemic and post-pandemic. So we've not only looked at our personal lives and what we'll do differently, but I think people are also re-evaluating companies, what they stand for, and are they in the right place? So I think it is natural, I think, that people would do that. But I think as far as acquiring and looking at the marketplace, I'll share an example with you. I've got an open role at the moment and last week, you know, very quickly, swiftly, I would say, within like 24 hours, um, the internal, the incumbent uh, company provided an internal offer and uh, secured the candidate that I was looking for. So I think we're seeing people um, be more responsive. They want to make sure they're retaining people in their businesses. And I think we haven't seen that in the past, particularly for a lot of larger B2B companies. So it mm. is really around speed. It's around how do you provide value propositions And I think working through relationships, making sure you're connecting to your network and finding the right people that are going to be a cultural fit. Mm, That's a good point. Just while I've got you on this, Caroline, when you're looking outside, so that particular person, you know, which of course you're not going to name or the company, but it's the type of person is where I'm sort of going to. Were they they a B2B marketer? Were they a B2C? And where do you, they were B2B. So where are you sitting on trying to expand this talent pool for B2B? And are you looking, are you open to B2C? marketers and where are you sitting on that b2b versus b2c in the pool agree oh look i think for myself i think we should be looking at a diversity of skills we shouldn't just be going for one size fits all and just a b2b marketer i feel like the complementary skills across the team lead to a high performing team so we need to be looking broader than b2b absolutely we've got some great b2b marketers but I don't want the same person in every role in my team. And there's different roles that would suit a B2B, B2C role versus a B2B role. So we're, we're broadening out, I suppose, our net, making sure that we can really attract people from B2B and B2C and really show that, you know, an integrated marketing function is the best function to have from brand to demand. Just in your experience so far, what's the upside and downside in B2C market? It's a typically a different mindset, right? So what is the up and down to hiring a B2C in B2B? So I think I would say just, you know, back to sort of capabilities, not talking about mindsets, but capabilities, you know, I think they're probably stronger sometimes in the storytelling and looking at more mass marketing. Um, I come from an agency background and I think, you know, working with a lot of B2C customers they have more breadth and more creativity often. But I think we shouldn't discount B2B. We are seeing this in droves coming through. You know, we in B2B marketing and attracting and um, targeting the B2B organisations, we need to take on those skills of storytelling, of creativity. Uh, we talked in the roundtable around um, 95% of people are, are they not in the buying phase. So we need to attract we need to create awareness. We need to create um, consideration. It's not just about lead generation. And this is where B2C and those capabilities can really help us, you know, evolve B2B going forward. Well, Prue, this is in the, uh, I guess it's in the sweet spot too for what the B2B Institute's doing out of New York and around a lot of the storytelling brand building for B2B. It's sort of really trying to take some of the, the principles that have been in B2C marketing for a long time and go, okay, B2B, you still got to do all the things Caroline talked about, lead generation, bottom of the funnel. But there is an added dimension here where 
B2B marketers and B2B buyers are humans and storytelling and consideration and always on and all those mental availability things, principles, they all still hold for B2B. That's what you're sort of seeing in the work out of the B2B Institute, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've, we've talked before about this 95.5 that, you know, 5% of your customers are in market at, at any time and, and 95 are, are not in market, but, you know, considering buying cycles will be, you know, at some stage. Um, I think that you know, a lot of B2B marketers traditionally are just so focused on that 5%, um, very lower funnel, very much around short-term KPIs, where the exciting thing, you know, what Carolyn was saying is B2C marketers often will have more of a long-term point of view, will be thinking about br- building that brand longer term and thinking about those out-of-market customers as well. And I think things, bringing in some of the, the things like humour, you know, bringing in creativity and, you know, not necessarily you know, marketing B2B brands is a very rational, um, creative message, which often can be the case. Just uh, dawned on me, Caroline, you are working on a brand campaign at the moment yourself, are you? Or have you done it? Just uh, where are you at in that brand yeah, area? Yeah, we've just launched a new brand campaign actually globally in February and you'll be seeing it soon in Australia. Good. So, yeah, we are um, absolutely making sure that brand is included and the B2B marketers, if you I mean, I would like to say that we're marketers, not B2B marketers, but our team will be taking that out to market. Mm. And you, in principle, kind of agree, or where do you sit with the 95-5 rule that's sort of emerging and, and sort of being talked about a lot now with only 5%, and this is in a B2B context too, right? Only 5% of your customers are typically in market right now to purchase. The rest of them are in the cycle somewhere. Do you buy that 95-5 rule, Caroline? Where do you sit with that? Absolutely. So I think that's bang on. Um we have long sales cycles t- traditionally in B2B. So it makes sense that not everybody's going to be actually ready to sign on the dotted line at every point. Um, so we do need to have a breadth of marketing across the customer journey to be able to take them through that journey to the final point. Um, and I think we do need to spend more time on that 95%. Good. And now, Kelly, your thoughts on on the upsides and downsides for a B2B marketing team hiring B2C marketers. Now, you are a while back. You've made the move. You switched. <laughs> yes. And you've coped and you're still there. Yes. So it's a good sign that it can work. So just talk, talk through both your personal experience and also what you're seeing at Telstra in terms of what the upside and downside is to taking on marketers that have more consumer experience than you know enterprise or business experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I did join Telstra as a B to C marketer and it was a great B2B marketing leadership team that lured me over to the dark side initially. So it was kind of the opportunity to work with some leaders that I really wanted to work with. I'm also a very purpose-driven marketer and I found a lot of purpose in in the product portfolio that we work with in Telstra Enterprise and some of the solutions that have really been helping businesses and government thrive, particularly across the last few years. So I loved that. And that's definitely something that we see with as an attraction point for B2C marketers, you know, and really relevant to this conversation around recruitment and talent is I felt like moving over to B2B and working on some products like Internet of Things, like cybersecurity, I was really future-proofing my career. So there were definitely some selfish reasons. Mm. It wasn't totally altruistic around um, yes. being a purpose-driven marketer, but I really felt as though you know, my my niche now is my breadth, having worked across both, and that's a really um, great value proposition for myself as a, as a marketer. Just on that transition, yep. Kelly, just on that transition, what were the biggest things you found you had to change up coming from a consumer marketing team to a B2B team? Was there anything that you recall? Because it was a while back, I'll give you that, but <laughs> was it um, not that you're that old, by the way? Yes, take that right back. 
But, you know, was there some standouts where we went, oh, this is where I've really got to fast track my capabilities in some areas he didn't have before? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it's a very natural progression for a data-driven marketer. Um, it's a lot more scientific and it's a lot more data-driven in terms of following your customers through a journey from out there in the wilderness through to a closed run opportunity and, and the marketing technology stack that it passes through there uh, and how measurable we are there. But I love I love the psychology of it a little bit more in B2B and I really feel like you can really see when you've had an impact with your comms and you've really defined your role of comms and you've gone out there and you've changed someone's mind, you've gotten them into the market, you've followed them through the pipeline and everything that's involved in that in terms of buying groups, purchasing cycles, personas, those sorts of things that um, it isn't all about the the MarTech and the, and the data you know, there's real satisfaction, I think, for, for people who are traditionally high performers in, in B2C environments um, to really say, yeah, I did that. Right. <laughs> I changed that person's mind. That's so satisfying. Yeah, yeah, right. It's good. And, and so, Prue, just, I mean, Kelly mentioned it, but in terms of she talked about how dart, being data-led and analytics and a lot of those things that are now really, really hot capabilities in the market, everyone wants them, doesn't matter whether you're in business marketing or consumer marketing. They are skill sets and capabilities that are sought after. What are you seeing broadly in some stats there on, on the new capabilities and I guess the mindset required in B2B? Have you got some thoughts on that? Yeah, look, the fastest growing skills that we're seeing within um, the industry, and this is this sort of goes B2C and B2B, you know, analytical skills is, is number one. That is just, you know, really accelerating. Um, customer experience, content marketing and um, customer satisfaction. So very customer centric. Content marketing, is, I think, as we've seen that rise up a lot um, through the pandemic um, as people shifted more to a, um, a digital experience so really thinking about that content marketing experience with their customers because they won't be doing a lot of events one-to-one etc but that analytical skills piece is yeah it's very hot in the talent market does that sit with you caroline does that make sense or does it resonate in terms of the skills and capabilities that you're looking for and i guess this is you know do you agree with Kelly and Prue, really, that that is the upside for B2B marketing experiences that you do naturally get a quicker, a quicker bridge, I guess, a shorter bridge. Yeah, that's, that kind of works maybe to those analytical and analytic skills, the data led sort of capabilities. Is that an upside in B2B? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love data. Maybe that's why I am where I am. But um, I agree. I think it's very satisfying to know when you have success and where you need to put focus on. We are finding it hard to get analytics capabilities, even though, and that's why it's in demand. Uh, We're finding more just doing in-house training is actually working better because I think this is something that if you you have very few in the market that have those skills, then, you know, looking inside and how we kind of improve those capabilities. Build your own, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so what does that program look like? So it's about bringing in training and programs to make sure that our teams can not only be focused on, I suppose, helping them in their day-to-day jobs now, but also, uh, I suppose, to Kelly's point, future-proofing your, your future and you know, providing that learning and development. That's another employee value proposition we can bring to our teams. Well, it's interesting you say it because at the same time as, you know, B2B's got a job ahead of it in, in thinking about narrative and brand, which we talked about earlier, you've also got the need to keep building out capabilities and, and data-led expertise. So I guess, you know, in your world, what are the new capabilities and mindsets that you're looking for in B2B marketing? It's kind of like you've got two big ones there we've talked about. 
Are they the two big ones? And what else are you looking for in your talent? Uh, for me at the moment is very much around, yeah, data and digital. Uh, I think that's, you know, and that can be B2B and B2C. I mean, I think B2Bs are more lending themselves to data, but I think this is something that we need in all of our marketing. It doesn't matter where you sit, you know, understanding who you're touching, what the outcomes are, is really a success for any marketer. But digital skills as well is also something hard to come by and something that we're also seeking. I'm not sure, Prue, if you've seen that in your results as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely digital. Um, And I think especially... You know, what we've seen as a global trend is B2B marketing has um, really increased its digital presence over the last two years because of just the, the changing nature of how you can interact with a customer. So I think that that increase in digital skills with B2B marketers is definitely accelerated. Kelly, for you on the new capabilities and mindsets, and we didn't kind of get your take on on the brand stuff and the narrative building, you know, that 95.5 and, and where you sit on that, but just quickly, maybe you've got some thoughts on that, but then what are the top capabilities and also just, you know, that mindset, that disposition of the individual is driving the culture fit, if you like. So what is top of mind or what is the top priorities for you and the sort of talent you're looking for now and, and what capabilities they have or what you want to build in them? Yeah, definitely. And to touch on the 95.5, absolutely agree with that. And at Telstra, we've got a really interesting position with our brand awareness and consideration in that we've got a really um, strong portfolio that's got great awareness and consideration. Um, And then we've got some growth portfolios around products that we've got great expertise in, but not as necessarily everyone knows about it, things like cybersecurity um, and Internet of Things that that I mentioned before. So lots of jobs to be done there, which makes it a really exciting place for any marketer to have that kind of variation in the kinds of campaigns and the jobs that we need to do. In terms of capabilities, absolutely echo what Caroline's saying, data, digital, experience across the MarTech stack, data-driven, we absolutely are looking for those those skill sets. When it comes to mindsets, though, and I again agree with the sentiment, it's it's not a B two B unique mindset that we're looking for. These are the mindsets, and it's not even a marketing specific mindset that we're looking for. These are the, the the capabilities and mindsets of the future, and that's something that's quite recognised at Telstra. They've we've built a company-wide initiative called Future Ready, where it's external training and accreditation around the key horizontal capabilities that are required of all of us to be successful in Telstra's journey and beyond that, wherever your career takes you. And that that is capabilities around things like innovates and improves, adapts and grows, informed decision makers, collaborates and influences. You know, an interesting take on the collaboration piece, I'd say at the moment, is the mindset around flexible working and remote working. Um, We are not mandated to go back into the office and that requires specific focus from our employees to be committed to connection and relationship building and stakeholder management and collaboration in a remote environment. So that's a, that's probably an additional layer that's interesting at the moment as well. Well, can I mention here, I, don't, I won't say where because I'm not sure I should, but let's just say that you're not based in, in Telstra's HQ anywhere. You're in, we could call it regional Australia. It's not quite regional. If you want to say where you're based, that's good. I won't because I don't want to get in trouble, but, but you are way out of town. And it's been okay, right? You've got a team that's dotted all around the place and in the metro areas, but you're somewhere exotic. (laughs) I love that the Gold Coast is considered exotic. Thank you for that, (laughs) Paul. Well done, yes. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. I made the move up to the Gold Coast and you say Telstra HQ. I don't even know where we would consider HQ anymore, um, but we do have our teams dispersed around Australia. Um, I've got team members even in Southeast Queensland, Sunshine Coast, Brisbane, Gold Coast, you know, we've got people everywhere. That's not necessarily new for Telstra, but it's definitely become even more of a thing during uh, the it's pandemic. ramped up, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just inherently part of our fibre as a, as a Telstra employee now. It, it, it is how we work. Um, we don't waste time talking about when are we going into the office, when are we not. If there's something important, absolutely, the offices are nearby and we've got offices throughout the country that we can go into if, if needed. But it wasn't really even much of a conversation with any sort of hierarchy for me to say, can I do this? It's it's fine. And, and it's actually a big part of our recruitment strategy as well now that we can recruit talent from all over Australia um, to fill those, those positions. So when we're talking about um, let's dip into the pool of B2C marketers, we can also dip into the pool of marketers geographically anywhere as well. So all of these opportunities to broaden the talent pool. Well, it does get us interestingly to, you know, this theme of culture and returning talent and the boomerang effect that we talked about earlier. Caroline, I'm just interested, there wasn't solidarity at the roundtable between the CMOs on this uh, remote versus being in person with people like some CMOs. There was consensus on that the fact that flexibility was required and absolutely necessary, but can the best work happen remotely versus actually when you get together as a team? However infrequent or frequent it is, the in-person stuff is still really important. And some like Kelly just said, we make do and we're doing okay, thank you. Others go, no, there's an impact that's better when we're together. Where do you sit on that? And and it does get us to this culture and returning talent, but let's just start with the remote and in-office stuff first and your position on, on that, Caroline. Are you an in-person person or are you a remote all the time I'm is okay hybrid. person? I'm hybrid. You're and hybrid, think, of course. <laughs> and I think the the conversation I, I remember sharing about, I feel like it's choose your own adventure. It Whatever suits that person and how they work and how you get them to be able to achieve their best work, we should be facilitating that. And that's certainly something that I believe in and ServiceNow believes in as well. So like Kelly, um, I don't think it's, uh, you know, wherever you work, however you'd like to work, we should be able to help them as employees to do employees to do that. We did talk in the roundtable about, you know, some specifics, however. So when you're being creative and when you're coming up and brainstorming ideas, can you do that online? And I think the team, they, they were very split on that. My perception is I think Really, when that comes down to ideation and when you're looking at a couple of people to do that, particularly like creatives in agencies or internal, it is better in person. But ultimately, you know, the guiding light should be whatever you do to get your best work. Mm. I think Kelly said, you know, it might be better in person, but your team, Kelly, or at least it's happening, it's working, and so it's okay is essentially, or am I putting words in your mouth, Kelly? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There are opportunities and occasions to connect in person, absolutely. But for the vast majority of our work, we are and have been and continue to work in remote environments. And even if we were to say, let's get together in an office to do this, where where would it be? And there would be people having to fly interstate to do that. And so, you know, I remember saying we at the roundtable, we can't kind of have it as a key part of our employee value proposition to be so flexible and recruit from anywhere across Australia, but then at the same time say, oh, and also you have to come into the office on this particular day. Um, I mean, over the last couple of years, people have changed and have integrated new habits into their work life. I couldn't say 
on Tuesdays we're going to do this because there would be people that say, I can't, you know, my daughter does piano on Tuesdays now, that's not a day I can come into the office or I've set up a nanny situation here or whatever that might be. So, you know, there are times when we might encourage people to come together because of a cultural connection as well as for the benefit of the work, but we would always have to facilitate within that that probably not everyone's going to be able to be there because we've changed, that's not how we how we work anymore and we have got the right tools and mindsets and focus in place um, to get the outcome that that we need irrespective of of where people are located the work is what we do not a place that we go pro you're seeing that come through in the data i think too you're seeing a bit of that yeah we definitely are i mean look not this this stat's not surprising only 13 percent of employees want to return to the office full time so one three one, three, 13, yeah, percent. Right. So it's definitely changed. Um, and work-life balance is, you know, 63% are saying that's a big impact when they're choosing um, an employee. With the great reshuffle going on, you know, they're rethinking how, why and where they work and they are really looking for that flexibility. I think there's definitely not a desire to return to the way it was. It's about taking the goodness that we've created and creating sort of a way forward. Um, you know, for us at LinkedIn, it's about it's built on a foundation of trust I mean, I'm currently at a 200-person manager conference, which was, you know, quite strange. Somewhere exotic too, Prue. In San Francisco. But exotic, yeah. we've got a lot of people here in person, but we have to always have the hybrid. So, you know, we've had, a, a, you know, a hybrid component of our conference um, for the people dialing in. And I think that's definitely the way forward. But when we're talking about talent and the talent wars that are going on at the at the moment, um, you're know, thinking about your flexibility, the flexibility, um, the trust models, the hybrid models that you set up are going to be really key to attracting talent. So, um, to to all of you, really, and maybe Caroline first, um, what are the challenges though in this where onboarding new talent, um, where they don't have that physical, you know, bounce off, and it's there are you've obviously got all of you've got it sorted, but. That onboarding challenge where the sense of culture is created by physical proximity in some ways, interaction with with humans, you found a way around that or has it still got some rough edges that you're trying to smooth? And I sort of caveat that with, you know, if you think about by the end of next year, so where are we now, 2022, the end of next year, 23, there's essentially going to be nearly three to four years of talent that have come through in a, in a business environment that have never come in to an office permanently and had the cultural connection at least, they are fully indoctrinated into a flexible or hybrid way of working and they don't know any different. It's extraordinary when you start projecting out in 12 months' time, there's three to four years of intake of people, new people in the industry at least anyway, that have never known anything different and it's just going to continue. But it's a long way around to going around the onboarding stuff first, Caroline. What's the challenge there? So I think one of the key things here is in ServiceNow, it's actually one of our products and what we provide. And my experience personally um, has been phenomenal. So we actually on our platform provide a digital experience that basically as a manager, I can. it tells me each day, you need to do this, you need to do this task, you need to set a buddy, you need to do this. It actually then wow. streams work to finance, it streams work to operations, it streams work to all the different components around an enterprise to wrap around a person digitally so it's a seamless experience. It it goes, this is what you need to do today on the learning and development. So actually digital experiences can actually enhance 
how you onboard now. And I actually think that is actually has been a better approach from a culture perspective. What it means is it keeps you on point about all the things you need to tick the box on and you need to say that you've completed the tasks in that day. So it makes sure that you do the buddies, you make sure you do the welcomes, you make sure and um, nothing is missed. So I actually think the digital experience can enhance and be more comprehensive than what we've seen before. Interesting. Kelly? I agree with everything that Carolyn has said and I think just to build on that, it's about the fact that you've identified it as something that's different or challenging in this environment and therefore you put the focus on it. And so you put the focus on it and you find a way around around it or a creative solution to it to the to the problem. Yeah, connecting with people is different in this environment. But we find ways to do it. And, you know, if we've, if we've got a focus on we've got a new startup onboarding, how do we build personal connections, then we put the effort into making sure that it's not something that falls through the cracks. So I love that it's just around identifying that. And, and perhaps it, it has forced us to put a little bit more attention on building relationships that maybe kind of accidentally happened before we can be a bit more intentional about it. And be more structured, right. So we still haven't got to the boomerang effect and culture. So should we try that now, which is I think um, one of the CMOs at the roundtable mentioned that they were seeing, you know, and I think Prue's got some numbers on this as well, as sort of an average of 30% in salary increase. Prue, was that your number? You know, where people, talent are moving for, no, I'm, okay, I'm putting words in your mouth. There was a number floated anyway at the roundtable, and it may have been from the other CMOs, basically where, where they're losing people, for, they're going for salary and then landing and realising that culture, the grass is greener, was not greener, and they want to come back because culture is better where they were. What are your thoughts and experiences on this to all of you? And maybe, Prue, start with you if you've got some thoughts on that. Culture and returning talent, basically. Yeah, and we're definitely seeing it within our business. I think that you know, we're lucky to be a company that is you know, renowned for its company culture. And I think we don't think about company culture as the Friday night drinks that it used to be. I think it's about what we stand for, the values, um, you know, how we look at you know diversity, inclusion, belonging, how we we trust and care for each other, what we, what, how we dream big, how we innovate, how we get things done. And I think that people are really prioritising that. I think the discussion that we were having at the round table was that interviews these days are as much about the you know interrogating you about what what are the values of the of the company what do you stand for what are your sustainability impact your pieces that you're that you're looking at and um it's definitely changing with people are wanting more fulfillment from the the organization that they join so they are really interested in in the depth behind the company and i think that is demonstrating culture mm, and i've always i'm perplexed really by by what we say in some of the research and what we say why we're moving versus what goes on. Because in the end, we talk about culture as individuals and being really important. But there has been a phase, right, a fast, rapid phase of where the money's been talking. People are going for salary increases, um, even though we say we want culture. And it's when they land somewhere else and go, oh, okay, yeah, when I said culture, maybe I meant it because the money's good, but it's not good. It's not as great an environment. Caroline, to you on on that, are you seen any anecdotal evidence of this cultural impact and people going, I've made a decision, I've left, and it wasn't as good on the other side? Yeah, I think my first day at ServiceNow, actually um, onboarding, one of the people in that session was a boomerang. And actually, that was an amazing thing to have on my first day that, wow, isn't that amazing that you've come back to the business 
because you think right. the culture is amazing in the employee experience. And it was exactly that example. But it's also, you know, the ripple effect as well. When you see the boomerangs come back, it makes you feel like you're in the right place and you've made the right decision. Spot. I think the yeah. other thing on this is I will always make sure we leave the door open. So it is a small market pool and you just never know. And I think as managers and employers, we need to make sure that we're always welcoming people back and keeping the door open because alumni really is one of the key pools that we should always think about. Stay friendly, even with your past colleagues. Kelly, that boomerang, you've seen any of it in culture and money and uh, holding people? What cards are you playing on that one? Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation and point that was brought up at the round table. It's not something that we've seen as much. A lot of our open roles are actually due to internal promotion at the moment. So I guess it do- they can definitely come back if they want. But um, <laughs> but they're going somewhere else in the org. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's an interesting one because we've definitely seen research that says that your work-life balance and your experience at work is so much more important or as important or more important than remuneration. And I mean, assuming everyone's paid fairly. Um, it does mean looking elsewhere is about more than more than just money. And we saw some research out of MIT that said that a toxic culture contributes to attrition 10 times more than remuneration. So I don't think any of us are talking about having a toxic culture, but it shows the impact that, that that's got on it. And I think I loved um, the way that Proof framed it as being fulfillment. Um, it's not necessarily that people are looking for uh, specifics on pay or work-life balance or culture or anything because that means that there's a preconceived idea of what culture is and that we all need to have a good culture. It's around just fulfilment and alignment with values and, and what fulfilment means for an individual person. And for us and within my team, I guess if you define and counter toxic culture for me, it's around building a high-performing culture. There's a sort of if we were looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I would say that the bottom piece there is a personal connection and, and relationship and investment in the people that you work with. Um, the next layer for me is respect. And we've seen a lot of research to say that people feeling respected is the leading indicator of a company's cultural score. And then the big thing for me that sits on top of that, that's again, as if not more important, is doing great work. And that's a big part of culture for me. It, it is definitely about the connection and we love to do activities together as a team, albeit remotely um, over, <laughs> over the computer, but doing great work and setting the team up and enabling and empowering and motivating them to do some of the best work of their career. I think that's some of the best things that you can do for a team culture, getting everyone vibed up, momentum in the same direction, really aligned with how we're delivering great results. And I think that that's a really important contributor to the cultural space as well. Well, look, you're all giving too many good answers because we're running out of time. We've got two more quick questions to cover before we wrap this up. And I, I do definitely want to, we've kind of touched on it, but I just want you all to expand a little bit on B2B's cred. So is there a job to do there? Is there a perception that B2B marketing is still fundamentally the workhorse for sales? And can that be limiting, at least at a perception level among marketers, is that B2B ain't as sexy as B2C? So is there a bit of a perception lag? Because as we've talked about, all the really in-demand capabilities and data and analytics and, and digital are all fundamental to B2B's re- marketers' remit. So do we still have a B2B perception challenge? Caroline, to you first. So I think there probably is a little bit of a perception gap here. But 
The reality is that I think these the B2B and B2C are merging together very quickly. So we've just we talked at the round table about now we've got the first B2B award at Cannes. We're looking at the spend. So you know, B2B um, spend used to be less. I think Deloitte said that it was at 9.4% last year, whereas B2C was 15.9% of the overall company spend. But I see that actually narrowing very quickly. I think in a couple of years that they will blend, even if in the next year, these roles. And I think just talking about B2B will be something that people will be like, oh, B2B, isn't it just a marketer? So I think we're right. really making a lot of momentum and large leaps as far as our credibility, but also that it's not that different. It's not that different and the capabilities should be across the board. Yeah, good points, Prue. Um, the perception lag, have you got some thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it is still there. Um, I think that definitely some of the exciting work that we're seeing with some of the academics that we're working with, you know, from Ehrenberg Bass Institute through to, you know, Burnett and, and Field, you know, really focusing on more fundamentals around B2B, I think is actually broadening out that perception and the education piece. I definitely still think, though, there might be, you know, this perception that it is very just performance marketing and, and um, you know, demand gen marketing. So I, I'm really excited as we keep on growing that, um, the full sort of, you know, full funnel activity and the, and the brand impact that needs to happen with B2B. Um that we'll really start to see that shift. Kelly, your is there a lag? I mean, not clearly not in Telstra where you're equal to your consumer colleagues and counterparts, but you know, observations on the market. I just got that out of there so you didn't get in trouble, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. I think that there is a bit of a perception gap. I think that we are filling it with some of the exciting uh, campaigns and technologies that we go to market with. The challenge that I think that we've got is a perception around complexity as well complexity of the portfolio of the sales cycle of the MarTech. That's something that we've got to overcome and really show how, paint a really clear picture of what success looks like in a B2B marketing team and, and how achievable that is. On the point of, of marketing being a workhorse for the sales team, though, it's not something that I feel. It's an interesting point, though, and to anyone that is feeling that, I would just say salespeople, by definition, are very engaging and fun people to work with. And I actually think when sales and marketing are in really tight alignment with campaigns, not only is it more successful, but I feel closer to the customer than I ever would in a B2C marketing function where you're quite far away at times from your consumer customers. So I absolutely think it's a really fun space to be when you're really tight with your sales counterparts in taking a campaign to market because it's a really uh, motivating place to be. That's another thematic we've got to unpack because I think maybe there's a lot of uh, B2B people that would like to talk to you, Kelly, because I'm not sure they share the same fabulous experience with sales. There's a little bit, some talk in my conversations, some talk of a little bit more tension than that. So, you know, understanding how to make improve and, and really optimise the relationship with sales between sales and marketing is a good conversation we should have at a later time. Yeah, but- I mean, there's there's best case scenarios and worst case scenarios in it, right? But I'm talking about the best case scenarios where you're walking hand in hand and that's when, you know, things are humming along and it's it's empowering. We got one more question to, to cover and it is a big one. I think one of you mentioned it a bit earlier, ESG, environmental, social governance, sustainability and so forth. We heard some really fascinating examples at the roundtable about how talent is grilling prospective employers on their environmental, social and sustainability policies before they even want to know about the job spec. So they're just basically saying they're putting it back on the, on the employer to go, how good are you before I even am interested in the job? 
tell me your position. So how big is the the ESG and sustainability stuff for the prospects and well, the talent that you're trying to both keep and acquire and prove? Do you have a stat on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely growing. We've seen now that your ten percent of all job postings have at least one green skill in it. Right. So this your desire to increase up green skills is definitely there. Sustainability manager is the fastest growing green job across APAC. So we're seeing it sort of branch into, you know, into sort of new areas within the business. But then I think on the flip side, again, when you're talking about that company culture, they are questioning, you know, tell me about your sustainability program and what you have in place because I want to make sure that aligns with my values. Karen, I don't think it was you, but that, that anecdote I talked about where they were felt they were being grilled all the time by prospects, does, do you have the same experience or do you kind of, does it ring true? I haven't seen it to that extent, but I think back to the point that all people's job seeking are looking for a company about a great culture and a great purpose. And this sits into the purpose piece. I think we all are in the market at the moment and most organisations you know, have an ESG policy because it's not just, you know, new talent. It's also about our customers, our partners. They all expect that of us now. So, you know, at ServiceNow, we certainly have a clear policy in place. We've got programs where we do a community-led programs and products that we can certainly talk to. I mean, I myself, I've signed up to lead the program across ANZ for our global impact yeah. policy. So it's something that I want to lead from the front end. Um, yeah. And I see Just that another as thing to do, Caroline. Well Just done. Just another thing to do. But I think this is, you know, this becomes your purpose. And that's mm. what everybody's mm. looking for. So am I seeing it to that extent? No. But I think it's an important part of any organisation that they need to, you know, put a be real. It is an important pillar for talent, but also the whole ecosystem we work in. Kelly, for an Australian company, Telstra is pushing quite fast and rapidly into its ESG positions on net zero and and the rest. Some really interesting initiatives. Does that end up being a good talent magnet to keep and acquire? Is it impressive for people when you talk to them about this? Yeah, absolutely. It's big for our employees. Our employees tell us that they're really proud to work for Telstra who are uh, leaders in this space and they continue to challenge us to do more. And yet it shows up in interviews for us, but it shows up in interviews for us when we ask like, what excited you about this role? What attracted you to Telstra? Um, That people, our candidates are telling us that it's um, our leadership in reducing our emissions by 50% by 2030, enabling the generation of renewable energy equivalent to 100% of our consumption uh, by 2025. Those are really important pieces that uh, potential candidates have latched onto when they even apply for a role with Telstra. And I love it, particularly we're seeing this with the younger generation. And I just think how amazing that these younger generation are taking corporates to task on this, that they're driving an agenda for for change in this space and and demanding that um, that we step up and take action here. So I am all for it. I think I get that impression, Kelly, for somehow. I think you're a pro at <laughs> Prove your final thoughts on, on the ESG and talent and some final thoughts generally before we wrap up. We're out of time. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, I think we've all got to realise that, that you know, the talent market is super hot. I think that we've got to realise that your people, candidates are assessing us before there's even that interaction. So one of the final stats I'll share is um, that from first touch point to hire, there are 8.9 months on average. So your wow. candidates are having 61 brand interactions before then they're actually moving through. So you've got to really start building up 
what is the awareness of you as a as an your employer of choice? You know, what does your company stand for, and how can you be doing that not just at an interview stage, but actually earlier, so that you're attracting the right type of talent and and that people are proactively looking to come to work for you and retaining staff. Yeah, and it just goes there proves again that big long cycle and the ninety five five and all the things that go on before you actually really put the job ad out. There's work to do before that in making sure that you are an employer of choice by some of these things. So like it just, this whole funnel and the 95.5, it just keeps repeating itself in parallel universes, doesn't it, where it's a truth. We are out of time. It was a really interesting conversation. So um, Caroline Raj, Kelly Tyson, Prue Cox, great combo. Let's loop back around on the sales one. I'm interested in the sales marketing tension because um, it bobs up all over the place in my conversations. Stay safe and we'll have you back. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.